So our text this morning is in Romans. We're going to be um, in chapter 2, starting in verse 25. And while y'all turn there, I want to start with a story that's, uh, that's told about the philosopher Plato. It's, uh, so the story goes that when he was asked to define what a man is, what a human being is, the answer that he gave, he said that a man is a featherless biped. So he walks on two legs, doesn't have feathers. I think that matches everyone in this room. But that prompted his like, philosophical rival to pluck a chicken and bring it into his classroom and say, behold, a man. Right? Idea, featherless, biped, this must be a man. This is one of those stories that's told, at least in, uh, you know, I was a philosophy major, so we talked about it in philosophy classes, to talk about an example of a, an inadequate definition of what a man is and how difficult it can be to define something as complex as a human being. But ultimately, Plato's problem is that he deals with what's on the surface. He deals with the outward appearance of man rather than going um, to the inside, right? Because what really separates human beings from, from everything else, I mean, biblically it's that we're made in the image of God, but even from just a general revelation perspective, it's that we are, um, right, we have souls. It's what's on the inside of us that really separates us. And, and in our text this morning, Paul is dealing with a similarly flawed definition, not of a man, not of people, but of the people of God. So the Jews of Paul's day had a flawed definition of what it meant to be part of God's people. And that's what Paul is dealing with in our text this morning. So uh, if you would stand with me, and we will read from Romans 2, verses 25 through 29. This is the word of the Lord. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Y'all can have your seats, and I'll go to the Lord um, in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we... We ask for your, um, your blessing. You would send your spirit now to open our eyes to, and open our ears to hear what you have to tell us this morning. We ask that even now you would be using this text to change our lives, to make us into the men and women that you desire us to be, and to draw us closer to you, to show us our need for a Savior. Um, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we really dive into our text this morning, I want to look at, talk about two things that I think are helpful for understanding uh, this passage of Romans. Uh, the first is just this idea of circumcision, of what it is, why it's important. And so I want to, I'm going to jump back to Genesis 17 that 
Austin read for us a couple minutes ago. Because this is where God, for the first time, institutes circumcision, um, this practice of circumcision with his people. So God is talking to Abraham. And in verse 6, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So God here, at this point, he's just repeating blessings that he's already given to Abraham. To, to make him, to bless him, to make him fruitful. And then he goes on. God says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant. So now God is promising, he's making this covenant or oath. A covenant was just an, a mutually binding oath. So he's making this covenant or oath with Abraham. And the contents of that oath are what comes next. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. So at the heart of God's oath, his covenant with Abraham here, is the promise to be Abraham's God. He's saying you and your offspring are the ones that I have chosen to be God to you and to have you as my people. So then verse 10 is where the circumcision stuff kicks in. He says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision for Abraham and his offspring was a sign, a reminder of God's promise here to be their God that they are his people. And so every time a member of uh, the Israelite nation, a Jew, would have circumcised their son, it was, they would have been reminded, we are God's people. He is our God. Right Back with Abraham, he chose us. And so then God tops it off in verse 14. He says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so then if we jump forward in time to Paul's day from Genesis 17, so the Jews of that time would have looked at this passage at Genesis 17 as a clear proof that they were God's people. That what it meant to be God's people was to be the the offspring of Abraham who have been circumcised. And so they would have, they say, look, see, obviously Genesis 17 teaches that we are God's people. And the reason why that matters to Paul and to us is tied into the kind of the second thing I want to note, and then we'll jump into our text, is simply what Paul is trying to accomplish here in these, um, in chapters 1 through middle of 3. Gage did a great job last week of kind of walking us through that, and this idea that at the that Paul kind of has one point from in these early chapters, and it's this, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and sin. And that means that you and I are in its path. That there is nothing about um, your sin or mine that we can say, oh no, that's different, right? God's coming against this ungodliness, but he's not coming against me. Right, because he starts in chapter 1 with this general proclamation. And then Jeff, a couple weeks ago, dealt with this idea of that, you know, if we judge others, we've done the exact same thing. 
And then last week, Gage talked about how it's Jew and Gentile alike. No matter what law you, you follow, you're, you're going to break God's law, and you're subject to his judgment because of that. That we cannot keep God's, um, what God expects. We cannot live a perfect life. And so now in our text this morning, Paul is coming for the Jews again. And he's addressing this one specific reason why they might think that they are exempt from God's wrath. Why their sin, you know, God's wrath is coming against ungodliness and sin, yes, but not ours. And the reason why they think they're exempt is because they're God's people. See, Paul would have known that a good Jew would have been listening to everything Paul's been saying with this objection in the back of their minds. But we're God's people. We're different. God's not going to bring his wrath against us. So what Paul is trying to get across here is that being part of God's people may not mean what you think it means. And right that more so, putting your trust in this flawed definition of God's people is, um, I mean, they're basically that they are. They're putting their trust in this flawed definition of who God's people are. They're putting their trust somewhere that it doesn't belong. And so Paul's question for us this morning is simply this. Do you understand what it really means to be part of God's people? And more so, do you think that you're safe from God's wrath because you're part of God's people here on earth? In other words, if we're short and sweet this text, it's stop looking to your position in God's people on earth for safety from his wrath against sin. And there's kind of three, three aspects of that that Paul talks about. And this is going to be kind of our three points as we, as we go through our text this morning. So the first is to stop looking to outward markers. Second, stop looking to possession of the law. And thirdly, is stop looking to the praise of man. So if Paul starts with uh, this admonishment to stop looking to outward markers. So he starts by saying in verse 25, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Basically, if you have the marker of circumcision, that means nothing unless you also keep God's law. And what Paul is saying here isn't really a new idea. Because throughout the Old Testament, uh, God talks about uh, circumcising your hearts. As far back as Deuteronomy 30, God was trying to get across this idea that it's not what's on the outside This outward circumcision that I really care about, what I care about is what's in your hearts. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So the train of logic in that text in Deuteronomy is basically, if you you don't circumcise your hearts, then you won't love the Lord your God, and the punishment for that is death. And so you need to have your heart circumcised, not just your bodies, so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, so that you'll live. Because the only way to have life is to have your hearts changed in such a way that you are loving, um, 
loving God and obeying him. So Paul is building on this idea of Old Testament, um, this Old Testament idea of circumcision of the heart, which is, again, sort of, sort of a vague concept, right? We can ask, what does it really mean to circumcise your hearts? So that's what Paul gets at. If we jump kind of towards the end to verse 29, Paul says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So what is circumcision of the heart? It's the work that the Holy Spirit does to soften our hearts, bring us to God, and produce love and obedience. So the Jews of Paul's day, by focusing on physical circumstance, circumcision, were confusing the sign with the reality that God really wanted them to get. The sign of circumcision with the inward reality uh, of, of a changed heart, of the Holy Spirit coming and renewing us from the inside out. Now, obviously, circumcision is no longer a mark of God's people. We don't, um, we don't, you know, that's not an expectation as part of the church. But we still have outward signs that we use to set um, people apart as part of God's people, namely baptism. We believe that baptism has replaced the sign of circumcision as the marker that we place on those who are part of the visible people of God, part of the church. And while the particular marker of God's people has changed, Paul's message to us is still the same. Don't get caught up in the outward signs, in these outward markers. Baptism doesn't save us any more than circumcision saved the Old Testament saints. Because baptism with water is what brings us into the visible people of God, but what brings us into the spiritual people of God is baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit coming on our hearts and changing us, renewing us, and so don't get caught up in the outward signs. I, I don't know if y'all have those people in your lives, whether it's your parents' friends or your friends, who are sort of the, like, uncle, um, so it's, you know, so, like, I have an, Eloise has an Uncle Ben, who's my best friend in the world. He's like a brother, has no relation to me, you know, biologically whatsoever. We look nothing alike, you know, you would never know, you would never think we're brothers because we're not brothers, and so, but we, um, you know, he's the kind of man that I would love for my children to emulate. We have all of the things in common that, the, you know, he's a kindred spirit. We have common interests. He's, you know, we have the most important thing in common, that we have a relationship, a friendship that is centered around Christ. And so he's, you know, he is family, even if he's not blood. And I think that's kind of the idea that Paul is getting at. He's saying the, the, the people of God, it's not about blood. It's not about what's on the outside. It's about what's on the inside. It's about those, um, those kind of common, uh, those common traits, those um, just being, uh, having the same spirit, ultimately. I mean, having the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And the reason why it's important not to, to get caught up in the outward signs, where the rubber meets the road, is that an outward sign, whether it's circumcision or baptism or any number of other things that we may look to as sort of the outward markers of God's people, those are things that you can do to yourself. You can circumcise yourself. You can 
baptize yourself to one degree or another, right? You can throw some water on your head and say the name of the Trinity, but you cannot change your heart. Not, at least not on the 180 degree level that's required, right? Because becoming part of God's people is a work that God does. It's not something that we, we can earn, that we can do ourselves. Because God's work in the Holy Spirit is what brings us into God's people. So stop looking to kind of the outward markers of the Christian life as proof that you're part of God's people. And then secondly, Paul saying here, stop looking to your possession of, uh, of God's word. So the Jews at that time believed that God giving them the law, God giving them the 39 books of the Old Testament, was further proof, in addition to circumcision, that they were God's people, that they were the people that God had chosen. And they were right on one level, that God gave the, the Israelites um, Genesis through Malachi because they were his people, because he wanted his people to know who he was, how to live, and what he expected of them. And so the Old Testament was a further way that God had set the nation of Israel apart as his people. But what Paul here is saying is he's saying it goes deeper than that. It's not just about having the law, about understanding what God has said. It's about doing it, about inward obedience. So verse 27, Paul says, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. So that word in verse 27 where he says written code, um, if your Bible is like mine, there's a little footnote. It says, um, could be translated letter. So the word there that, Paul, that they're translating is actually a synonym, or it's a very, yeah, synonym, is that the right word? For scripture. That it's Paul's way of referring here to the books of the Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi. So Paul's saying, hey, you who have the Old Testament scriptures and circumcision, but you don't put it into practice, you're worse off than the one who has neither of those things and follows God's law. And kind of the image that Paul uses to get this point across is this image of Judgment Day. So, right, he says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. So the image there isn't that the Gentiles on the day of judgment will, pat, will stand in the, you know, the, the seat of judgment and pass down condemnation on the Jews. The image there is that, so the, or the, the idea, I guess, is that the righteousness of a person who has never heard God's word serves to magnify the unrighteousness of those who have God's word and don't follow it. That if, uh, right, because if someone who's never heard God's word ever in their life keeps it, right, it shows that those who have God's word and don't have no excuse, right? What excuse at that point do you have if someone who doesn't even know what the right thing is to do does it anyway? And that should be scary to us because we are now in the place of those who possess God's law, right? We have the 66 books of the Old and New Testament that we learn from. We open this every week on Sunday morning, and I hope that you all are opening it or listening to sermons or whatever throughout the week. And so we are those, we are the people of the book 
who are taught by God's word. But Paul is saying that none of that matters unless we're putting it into practice. You can read your Bible every day. You can understand everything that it says. But unless you're learning to put it in practice in your life, then all of that head knowledge that you have is worth nothing. That your theology, your understanding of Scripture is worth nothing unless you're learning to put it in practice. So in other words, when we get to the throne room of God's judgment, God is not going to ask you whether you can describe the doctrine of justification or the doctrine of our union with Christ or, um, you know, the Trinity. He's going to ask, will, you know, that we'll be judged rather based on whether we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me take a step back. Because at this point, it would be really easy to come to the sort of a, the conclusion, uh, basically, that we're, we're now we have to earn our salvation, right? To come away with a really, with a sophisticated legalism, maybe, because we need to work, you know, work on our love, not just our outward actions, but still a legalism nonetheless. Um, but that's not Paul's purpose here. He's not saying, hey, right now, you guys, get your act together. Start obeying God from the heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so that on the last day, you can say, yes, God, I loved you perfectly and I obeyed you. At this point, Paul is just tearing down those self-righteous facades that we all put up. And for some of us, myself included, when I'm honest with myself, one of those facades that we put up is theology, is our understanding of God's Word. It's easy to come to Scripture and come with the goal of forming the right ideas, of having the right knowledge and the right belief, rather than saying, all right, what does God's Word reveal to me about my own heart and my own, ultimately, inability to keep His Word and to obey Him from a heart of love? Because if we're honest with ourselves, right, about our level of obedience, we know that we don't measure up. We know that when we look in our hearts, what we find is darkness and sin, pride, greed, selfish ambition, laziness, but definitely not a love for God that goes so deep that obedience becomes easy. Because right, that's the standard that God has for us. It's perfection, right? A perfect love for him that leads to perfect obedience. And none of us can say that we meet that standard. So one of my favorite bands is uh, the group Mumford & Sons, and they have a song that called Roll Away Your Stone. And it's, the song is about someone looking into their heart, and it kind of uses this imagery of a, of a cave, covered by a stone. So if your heart is a cave. So this idea of rolling away your stone is sort of the idea of rolling away the stone of your heart, looking into it, uh, and kind of being afraid of what, what you're going to find in there. So the first verse goes, roll away your stone, and I'll roll away mine. And together we can see what we will find. Don't leave me alone at this time, for I'm afraid of what I will discover inside. And then the chorus is, he says, darkness is a harsh term, don't you think? And yet, it dominates the things I see. 
I love that song because it's the cry of a man or a woman who's looking into their heart, and what they see, what they find is darkness and sin. And that's the first step, ultimately, in being saved from God's wrath, is to come to a place of desperation, of seeing the darkness of our own soul, confessing our sins to God and saying, Lord, I need a Savior. As we, you know, removing these facades of whether it's that, the outward markers or right theology or whatever the facades are that you put up in your own heart, because it's different for all of us, to, to keep from having to look at what's really going on there um, and seeing the darkness and the sin. So whether that's for the first time this morning of really um, coming to grips with, what's, with the sin in your own heart or for the hundredth time as part of a lifestyle of repentance, um, that's, that's what this text calls us to this morning, is to look at our hearts and see where are those places that, um, where's the darkness in my heart? Um, so um, we're to stop looking uh, to kind of to the possession of the law. It's kind of the second point. And our third point this morning, our text, is to stop looking to the praise of man. In the end of verse 29, Paul gets at this. He says, his, referring to a true Jew, a true member of God's people, his praise is not from man, but from God. Those, that those who are part of God's people don't receive their praise from man. And on one level, this simply means Paul is getting at the idea that if we are really part of God's people, the world will always see us as backward, right? But I think more so what Paul is getting at is if we are part of God's people, we won't want the praise of other people because we'll crave the praise of our Heavenly Father, um, who really is, it's His praise is all that really matters. And if we are rooted in Him, we know that He loves us, that we have His praise, His favor. So we kind of dig into what Paul is saying here. It's, um, he's actually, Paul here is making a pun. So if you, uh, the word Jew is actually derived from the Hebrew word for praise. Uh, if you go to Genesis 29, when Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, when he's born, his mom says, this time I will praise the Lord. And so she names him Judah, which is derived from the Hebrew word for praise. Judah became one of the 12 tribes of Israel, which became the Jews of Paul's day. And so when Paul talks about the Jews' praise, uh, not being from man, but from God, what he's saying is he's saying the Jew, his praise, his Jewness, is from God, not from man. Uh, so, uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase translation, the message, he translates it this way. He says, and recognition comes from God, not legalistic critics. Uh, and I think that's helpful because Paul's point here is that the true mark of God's people will never be a standard set by men. It's not the recognition of other people, the standards that we set. It's the standards that God sets. That what ultimately matters in determining who are God's people is simply God's praise and His favor. It's His recognition. That my opinion, the standards that I um, would set don't matter one bit as to whether you are part of God's people. And the, your opinion, your standards you would set don't matter one bit as to whether I'm part of God's people. Because right? God's 
kingdom, we're, we as people, we're not a fraternity or sorority, right? We don't vote in our members. It's a, right, it's a kingdom, it's a theocracy. God is the one who sets, who decides who his people are, who sets the standards. Um, so this last kind of uh, mark, if you will, of God's people would be that we, are, uh, we have a growing lack of concern with the standards of others and a growing concern with the delight that God has when we obey him and the delight that he has when we turn in faith to Jesus Christ ultimately. Right, because that's what it's, what it's all ultimately about, being part of God's people. It's those who are putting their faith in Christ, who know that they're sinners and who are trusting in him for their salvation. And so we look not to the standards that other people have, but to the standards that God has set. I think a silly, uh, sort of silly example of this is I still remember the first time when, in seventh grade when I had a teacher tell me, or tell our class, that inviting Jesus into your heart is not in the Bible. And I just like was irate, like this man is a heretic, and then grew up, read my Bible, and realized that like that's, you know, that idea is not necessarily a bad one, but that, I, the, that language is not in the Bible. And if you're saying, no, in order to really be a follower of Christ, you have to invite Jesus into your heart, then that is a standard set by men. And so the point of all of this simply is this. If when you have standards for what you think God's people are supposed to look like, whether it's, you know, dressing nicely to church, going to church, um, you know, reading your Bible a certain number of times a day, to always be testing those standards against Scripture, right? What does God actually say that He um, expects of His people? What does God actually say that His people look like? And did you get, when you have these standards, did you get that from from God and His Word, or just from the other people around you? Did you inherit it just from the church you grew up in, or the, um, you know, the people that you, um, that you're around? So the wrath of God is coming against your sin and mine. And Paul, this morning, wants to make sure that we are not looking to these outward markers, that we're not looking to, uh, you know, to our understanding of God's Word, or that we're not looking to the praise and standards of other people, but rather that we're looking to Jesus, that we have our eyes fixed on Him. Because there is only one, all of these things are false saviors, they're facades. There's only one true Savior, and it's our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's His death and His resurrection that we are to, to look to as His people. So let's go to him now in prayer. Dear Lord, we ask that you would uh, take your word, that you would uh, sink it deep into our hearts, and that you would convince us of our need for you, that you would show us the places, the false saviors that we look to, whether it's uh, outward appearance or right theology or any um, number of other things, Lord, the, 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 uh, the opinions of other people, or that you would help us to... Uh, Lord, that you would dig those out of our hearts, that you would um, turn us to you um, in faith, knowing that it's not about what, uh, what we do, it's not about something that we can earn, but it's about your, your grace and your love towards us. And we 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.